Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we're just saying, we long for your return. What hope and joy awaits us on that day. When you return victorious over all your enemies, and you call your children home to share with you forever in glory. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in our time this morning as we open up the word that the Holy Spirit has inspired. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be front and center, exalted, because you're worthy of praise. And we thank you, Jesus, for the inheritance that awaits us. It's a glorious inheritance, a weighty inheritance. And Lord, we will see from your word this morning that it far surpasses the groanings of creation and far surpasses the groanings that your children experience as we suffer in this life. So Jesus, we long for you to return Or even if you call us home before you return, we long for that hope that awaits us, that new inheritance. So, Heavenly Father, we exalt you through your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. Wonder. What gives you hope? When you're discouraged or or sad or frustrated or angry... What gives you hope? Christians obviously know that the answer that we give you know, should have something to do with God, something to do with Jesus Christ, about the work of Christ on our behalf. You know, maybe we'll say, heaven gives me hope. But why? Why exactly is it that heaven would give us hope? Seems like... An obvious question, but how how do we answer that? And the reason I ask it like that is because I think there's so much misunderstanding about heaven. I think there is confusion, and I know for myself, I'm often mystified. What is heaven? What will it be like? Pastor Stephen said in a sermon recently that many people have the idea in their mind of skipping from one cloud to the next and from one harp to the next. Doesn't sound all that exciting. Or uh, maybe you have, maybe you've heard of this idea. So there, this guy named David Lloyd George, he was an early 20th century British prime minister. Here's how he thought of heaven when he was a child. When I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there would be no escape. So to a young boy, that's a gruesome picture. Heaven didn't give him very much hope. But really, is our hope of heaven any different? You know, do we think of heaven in such a way that it actually gives us hope? 
Maybe we misunderstand it, or maybe we're just too wrapped up in the things of earth. Maybe those things of this earthly life make us not all that interested in heaven. And as a result, we don't really have hope for heaven because it doesn't sound all that interesting. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our study in Romans 8, a study that Stephen has called All Things New. So why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. It's on page 800 of the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25. We're going to see today that Christians have a new inheritance, an inheritance that gives hope. Now, it's, it's been a few weeks since Stephen was last in this text, did a Palm Sunday service and Easter service. But when he last preached it, we saw that this glorious inheritance awaits us, but that the present life involves suffering. He ended on verse 17 last time, which says, uh, ends with these words, provided that we suffer with him, with Christ. What Stephen said was that suffering is anything that causes you to doubt that your Father loves you. So, the verses we're going to look at today are about the sufferings of this present time. So, kind of launching after Paul mentioned the sufferings, he goes in to the sufferings of the present time and how they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So let's look at these verses together, beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the main point we're going to see today is this. I'm going to write this down. Our hope crushes all our suffering. Our hope crushes all our suffering. Or another way you could say it, Christians possess a confident hope and a guaranteed inheritance that overshadows all present suffering. Hope crushes all our suffering. And we have this hope in the form of a new inheritance, but what exactly is this new inheritance? Well, first of all, it's a weighty inheritance. That's the, the first point from the text today is that we have a weighty 
inheritance, a heavy inheritance, substantial, heavy, weighty inheritance. Look again at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That little five-letter word glory refers to a huge, weighty thing, our future inheritance. Glory. It refers to the hope that we have that awaits us in the future, at the end of all time. So glory here equals heaven, or the new heavens and the new earth, all the new things that await believers. New inheritance. Well, there are a couple of Old Testament ideas that are present in this this word glory, in this inheritance idea. The first one comes from the promise to Abraham. Maybe you remember from Genesis 17. The Lord said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. In other words, Abraham would be the heir of the world. That's the phrase Paul uses back in Romans 4 to summarize that promise. The heir of the world. His inheritance would be the world in some sense. So that was a promise. And the, the, a second Old Testament promise comes from Isaiah 65. Isaiah wrote, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So, did you see that? So Abraham would inherit the world. The Lord will create, he promised us, to create a new heavens and a new earth, a new world. And these promises seem to just come together in Romans 8.18. Look at it again. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Clearly, this glory is a big deal. It's a weighty inheritance. It's heaven. And in the context here, I keep using the word weighty because Paul compares this glory to something. Compares it to something. Look at the first part of the verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. So Paul compares our present suffering to the future glory that awaits us if we're in Christ. He says they're not even worth comparing. Think about, think about scales, the kind of old-fashioned scales, or if you'd like, a teeter-totter. Think about that. The whole idea of either a teeter-totter or scales is even distribution. So on the scales, you're trying to get two things that weigh the same and to get it to even out. Or on the teeter-totter, preferably, you would like you know, two children who are about equal weight to be on opposite sides. I was a very heavy child, so it was very hard to find kids to get on the other side. They were, they were afraid, usually, of me launching them. It wasn't intentional. So if, if you think about that idea of, of scales or a teeter-totter, Paul is saying that you put our future inheritance on one side and our present sufferings on the other, 
and the weightiness of our inheritance launches those sufferings sky high, out of sight. They're totally gone. Not even worth comparing. That's what the inheritance is like. So our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to that. My brother or sister in Christ, realize this today. This glory to come, this promised glory, this future inheritance, it's far greater than any suffering you face. Any suffering. No illness. No grief. No loss of a friend or a loved one due to death or to moving away. No financial struggle. No persecution for the name of Christ. None of those sufferings are worth comparing to our weighty inheritance that awaits us. That glory will engulf us like a wave that will crash over us and and surround us. We can have hope because of that. And not only that, but when we suffer, because our sufferings are real, they're tangible, we we can experience them and we feel them, but when we do that, we're simply following in the footsteps of our Savior. Remember, Hebrews 12. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. His suffering was was far worse than any suffering that we will ever face. Yes, what we've focused on the last couple of weeks, His physical suffering, the beatings that He took, though he was innocent, the death on a cross which was understood to be the most shameful and painful way that someone could die in the ancient world, he suffered greatly. So we're following in his strong footsteps when we suffer. But remember the end of Hebrews 12 too. I didn't read it all. The glory that awaited him was that he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew the glory that awaited him. And because of that joy, he endured the cross. And he did it for us. That we could be with him forever. You know, as a church, we can encourage one another and bless one another by talking about the hope of this glory that awaits us. It's very easy to get caught up in the mundane, in the day-to-day. I mean, there's nothing wrong with when we see our, our brothers and sisters here, whether we see them at the grocery store or just around town anywhere, there's nothing wrong with small talk. That's not a sin. We don't have to plunge right into the deepest conversation right when we see each other. But if we never make a habit of encouraging one another with the hope that awaits us, then how else will we remember? We need to encourage one another regularly about this weighty inheritance. You know, meet, meet up with one another on a one-to-one kind of setting or in small groups and in those settings be sure to remind each other there's a glory that awaits us because of Christ and it far surpasses the sufferings we face now let's give up our time and sacrifice our time and energy for each other 
even for such a goal, to encourage one another with the hope that awaits us, the hope that crushes all our present suffering. Don't be alone in your suffering. Go to your brothers and sisters. Let them encourage you. And my non-Christian friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, we're really glad you're here, glad you could join us. I just want to ask you this question. When you suffer, could you say that you have a hope that outweighs that suffering? Are you confident that something awaits you that's more significant and weightier than your suffering? I imagine you probably don't have that hope if you're really honest with yourself. This is a joy and blessing that those who are in Christ have. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you can have hope that crushes all your suffering. It's a promise. He's faithful to give it. A hope and a weighty inheritance. So, that's right at the heart of the main point that Paul makes today. And the rest of the passage... Paul explains the implications of this weighty inheritance. We have a weighty inheritance. And there are some serious implications of it. So the second point today is this. We see that this inheritance will end the creation's frustration. This inheritance will end, finish, creation's frustration. That even the creation itself has a hope that crushes suffering. Let's look at this. It's in starting in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is frustrated. Now, not, not the angry kind of frustration, but in the, in the sense of being hindered. You know, plans foiled. The feeling of defeat. Goals blocked. That kind of frustration. So, sort of like if somebody said this. Our plan was to go see the Nationals beat the Braves, but our hopes were frustrated when the Braves won. A little provocative illustration. Um, Plans and goals blocked. The creation has its goals frustrated. It's not doing what it was intended to do. And it's because of human sin. Because of the fall, the created universe is clearly not as it should be. It's abnormal. Something is off. Something is wrong. Why is that? Look again at eight, chapter 8, verse 20. Paul writes, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Paul seems to be referring to to God here. Some people take it as Adam. But notice that that word subjected. Adam didn't have that much control over creation. It seems to make sense that it's God subjecting the creation to frustration 
because of Adam's sin. So Paul seems to have Genesis 3 in mind here, the account of the fall and then God's curse as a result of the fall. And actually these verses in Romans 8, they seem like Paul's inspired commentary on Genesis 3. So I actually think it would be helpful if we go ahead and turn there um, to get a closer look at it. So hold your spot there in Romans 8. And um, if you need to know the page number, it's page 3 for Genesis 3. It's a pretty easy spot to find. Genesis chapter 3. And start by looking at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So there's the curse on the serpent. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That seems to be specifically a curse on Satan. So serpent, and then Satan. Satan was indwelling the serpent in some way. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So clearly there's the curse on the woman, and then it's followed by the curse on the man. Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So clearly those verses indicate that something is messed up with creation. Something has gone wrong. It's abnormal. So this is why Paul says back in Romans 8 that creation waits with eager longing. That the creation was subjected to futility or frustration. And that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Something is off. Something is wrong in the created order. One theologian uh, a Dutch theologian named Herman Bavink. Here's how he explained this frustration, this futility. He explained it like this. With these curses, a history of suffering is ushered in for all humanity and all the earth. And all the suffering has its root in sin because Adam and Eve sinned. He goes on. All the suffering that strikes people here on earth, a short life, a sudden violent death, famine, plagues, wars, defeats, childlessness, painful losses, loss of goods, impoverishment, crop failure, on and on and on. It all has its root in sin. All these obvious pointers 
to the fact that creation is frustrated. So all those things explain what Paul means in Romans 8. That creation is frustrated. It, it can feel it. He, he personifies creation. He makes it sound like it's a person. It's painful to the creation that it's not doing what it was made to do. Verse 21, he says it like this, that it, it, it's like creation is hopelessly enslaved to corruption, to decay. And then look at verse 22. This is where Paul kind of sums up what he just said. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Up to this very moment, creation groans in pain. And then Paul uses this curious metaphor of of childbirth. Do we know from what we just read in, in Genesis 3 that childbirth now involves incredible difficulty because of the fall, because of sin. Yet, we also know that in a, in a healthy pregnancy and birth, we know that the pains of childbirth lead to the joy of a new life. We're blessed to celebrate this morning, little Eden. There's joy on the other side of all the pain and all of the difficulties that go into, in, into childbirth. And so Paul says creation is like this. So we see a hint of hope here. Creation is in the pains of childbirth right now. It's groaning. It's in suffering. It's in pain. But there's a hope that's coming. So Paul is talking yet again about the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. Heaven. The eternal joy of heaven. So this is where even in the groaning, all those pains that creation is going through, this is where again, hope crushes all suffering. Wayne Grudem says it this way, in this renewed creation, the one that awaits us, and that that creation groans for, there will be no more thorns and thistles, no more floods or droughts, no more deserts or uninhabitable jungles, nor earthquakes or tornadoes, no more poisonous snakes or bees that sting. There will be a productive earth, an earth that will blossom and produce food abundantly for our enjoyment. It will be the end of creation's frustration. It will be over. Long for that day. Again, I want to speak to my non Christian friend here this morning. Obviously, I imagine you can agree with this assessment that there's something wrong in the world. There's something that's off. You know, we're, we're delighting in spring now as the sun is more obviously there. <laughs> And the flowers are blooming. It's getting warmer. It, we, we're delighting in this. This is, this is great. But just a few weeks ago, we were still experiencing the, the cold of winter. We know that winter can't be the way things are supposed to be. And that's just one example of many. Creation isn't as it's supposed to be. So my non-Christian friend, I'm, I'm sure you agree with that. And no doubt, you feel that abnormality. That something's wrong, even in yourself. 
you've experienced sufferings, you've experienced pain. The only way for you to be freed from that suffering and that pain is to embrace the hope that Christians have. It's your only hope is to trust in Christ, to find the hope that crushes all suffering. See, as, as you read the Scriptures, it becomes very clear that God made us to love Him and delight in Him and to obey Him. But that Adam and Eve rejected God's kingship. They said, we want to be king, which was ridiculous and silly. They could never be king as God is. And we, who are the offspring of Adam and Eve, we continue in that rebellion. We try to be king. But we can't. We cannot do that. So we rebel against God. We don't obey Him as we ought, which is why the Father and in His infinite kindness sent the Son, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, to obey the Father fully and completely, and then to die on a cross for sinners so that anyone, anyone who repents and believes in Christ can be saved and can have this hope that crushes all suffering. My non-Christian friend, I beg you today, don't hold on to this world. It will fail you. Hold on to Christ. Cling to Christ. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Trust Him today. And you can also have this hope that crushes all our suffering. And my Christian friend, obviously you know that that truth of the gospel has changed everything for you. Because of the gospel, we have this weighty inheritance. A vast, glorious, amazing inheritance. That's the final point that we're going to look at today is that this weighty inheritance will one day end the believer's frustration. Just as it will end creation's frustration, it will end the believer's frustration. Beginning in verse 23, look there with me. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan inwardly, Paul says, because we, even more than the creation, are waiting for this future hope, this inheritance. He uses the phrase, not only the creation. So it's a progressive statement, but we ourselves groan inwardly. So just to be clear, what, what is this groaning that he's talking about? We need to define that clearly. So sometimes it's helpful to think about what something is not in order to understand what it actually is. So this groaning, it's not complaining. Not the kind of complaining that I, for example, am notorious for in our home. I'm not known for handling pain very well. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly significant pain, you know, I throw my back out. Oh, Liz, my back hurts. My back hurts. It still hurts. It's been hurting for days. Or, or something significant, our 
Many of you probably know because of my complaining. I hurt my knee about a year ago, so I still complain about that. But even, even the little things, I'm, I'm known to complain about them. I actually asked my wife yesterday if she could you know, help me think of some of those specific ones. Just I can't think of all the ones I complain about. Well, she laughed. That was her first response. And she, you know, she's like, I can think of five or six right off the top of my head. So I have a very gracious and patient wife. She doesn't, she listens, amen. She's, she listens to a lot of complaining about ridiculous things. I got a paper cut. My cuticles are cracked. I really, I complain about that one a lot. Okay, so that, that's not the kind of groaning we're talking about. That is a pathetic kind of groaning. Amen. <laughs> so that's not what Paul is talking about. Okay, so it's something obviously much deeper. Much deeper. I like how the New Living Translation translates this verse. We believers also groan, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Do you long for your body to be released from sin and suffering today? So on the one hand, yeah, Paul definitely is thinking of the physical frustrations of this life. The, the serious, any of the physical frustrations, the headaches, the backaches, broken bones, serious things like cancer. Those are groanings, deep groanings. We don't want this pain anymore, this suffering anymore. It hurts. It's, it's painful. It's grievous. But it's interesting because that's really only part of what the Word indicates here. The Word here also indicates our moral and spiritual frustrations as well. We're frustrated with our inability to obey the Lord. Our inability to change sometimes. Our inability to get rid of thoughts that plague us and past sufferings that we know God's forgiven us for, but they plague us still. Our inability to forget them and put them behind. We groan in that sense too. Our spiritual, moral frustrations. So we have this groaning. And commentator Douglas Moo, he describes it as a certain kind of attitude. This attitude does not involve anxiety about whether we will finally experience the deliverance God has promised, but it's frustration at the remaining moral and physical infirmities. And he says this is good. He says we must maintain a frustration at our failures and our intense yearning for that day when we will fail no more. That is a good kind of groaning. My brother or sister in Christ, that is a frustration that you should cultivate in your life. Yes, when we see physical frustrations, we should groan and, and, and say, come Lord Jesus and take this, this pain away from me. But also, our moral failures, when we fail again and again, we should grieve over them, be frustrated with those failings, and especially to point it towards our longing for our heavenly home. In the face of every kind of, of this frustration, whether it's physical or spiritual frustration, let's discipline ourselves 
to turn our thoughts toward heaven. Let's make a habit of realizing that frustration, that groaning is there, and then turn it towards heaven, towards the hope that crushes all our suffering. Let's not dwell in those frustrations, linger over them. Let's turn them towards the hope that awaits us. Another way you could say it, don't waste your frustrations. Don't waste them. Use them as tools to point you towards heaven. The Puritans used to make a habit of, of doing this, this uh, confession of sin, of, of realizing their um, failures, their frustrations. They would do it right before going to bed. It was something that the Puritans really encouraged and taught. As you're laying in bed, it's quiet. Your, your, your thoughts are, are all to yourself. Just to take that moment to express, to confess your sin and to express your frustrations with your failures and then to cast yourself on Christ. Know that as the beginning of the chapter says, and as Pastor Stephen preached a few weeks ago, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know if that got seared into your heart and your mind like it did for me, but there is no condemnation. You can express that, they can confess that sin. You can express that, that frustration with your moral failure and know if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You have a hope that awaits you that crushes all your suffering. Seize those opportunities. Cling to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cling to that hope. Don't waste your frustration. As, again, as Doug Moose said, turn that frustration at your failures into an intense yearning for that day when we will fail no more. Because hope crushes all our suffering and the inheritance that awaits us will end all of our present frustrations. All of them. Can you fathom that? Every single one of them, gone. No more frustration. Again, as a church, let's make a habit of encouraging one another with these truths. Let's, let, let, let's even share those frustrations with each other. You know, in one-to-one setting or in a small group setting or uh, when you run into each other at the grocery store. Let's, yeah, how you doing? Good to see you. Great. Hey, can I ask you to pray for something? You know, let, let's, just, let's take up those opportunities. He, Hebrews 3.13, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our hearts are plagued with deceitful desires. Desires that make us think that this world has hope in and of itself. That the things of this world, the, the, the money and the possessions and the success, that there's hope here for us. Sin deceives us into thinking that. But it's just not true. The, all the good things, there are good things we experience here. The joys of family and home and, and kindness of a friend. The beauties of creation that remain. Those are meant to point us to our hope. Maybe you've heard the illustration that C.S. Lewis used to use of, of walking into uh, a shed and as the sunlight shines in through the window and casts beams throughout the shed, that those beams, you know, they're, they're enticing, they're beautiful, but they're meant to call our attention back to the greatness 
of the Son that, that casts them. In the same way, the delights, the joys, the happiness of this earth are meant to draw our attention to the new inheritance that awaits us. And that inheritance, as Stephen preached a few weeks ago, is God Himself and all the blessings that He gives. If you've experienced blessings here on this earth and you know they're from God and and those blessings give you delight, then think about how great the giver is. He is a kind and generous Father. It's noteworthy here that the reason we are able to groan is because of the Holy Spirit. Did you see that in verse 23? Let's look at that. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits, because we, and it actually could be worded this way, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. It's because of that that we're aware of these frustrations, these moral failings, these physical infirmities. With the term first fruits, think, think of it this way. It's the first thing you get from the harvest. It's the sign of good things to come. I've never been a farmer. That would be a a terrible thing if I were a farmer. But uh, talk about failures. Um, But the, the first fruits are a promise of great things to come. The harvest is gonna come. That's what the first fruits indicate here. So here, the first fruit of the Spirit, it's referring to this, I think. It's the guarantee that we are in Christ. It's the same as in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, where the Holy Spirit is referred to as the guarantee of our inheritance. The wax seal that seals the letter that says this letter is from whoever. The Holy Spirit is that seal, the guarantee, the promise of greater things to come. Because He dwells in you, Christian, you have a certain hope. He is the first fruit of the life that is to come. And because of that, we wait, the rest of verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that's kind of strange. We've already seen from this same chapter that we already have been adopted. Why does Paul talk about it as something that we wait for. We wait the adoption as sons. Well, this gets at that tension that we find in the New Testament. I'm sure you, you've heard of it. The idea of the already and the not yet. That there are blessings and joys that we've already experienced because of the new covenant that Christ inaugurated, but there are things that we have not yet experienced. So we have already been adopted but we've not yet experienced the fullness of it. When our bodies are redeemed, he says, that's when we'll experience the fullness of it. I think this might be a helpful picture of of this kind of adoption. Often, as you know, a child will be adopted. The adoption will be complete. It's It's official. It's legal. He has a mom and dad, but they're separated by the globe. They're on opposite ends of the globe. There's a child sitting in a, uh, in a dark and dirty and lonely crib who has a mom and dad, but they're on the other side of the, the globe. They haven't been able to get them yet. So in one sense, he's already been adopted. 
but he's not yet received the fullness of that adoption. He hasn't come home yet. I think that's a good picture of what it's like for us. If you're in Christ, you have been adopted. Fully and completely. But there's an adoption that awaits us still. The redemption of our bodies. The remaking, the new bodies that await us and the glory that is to be revealed. So what about the the last two verses? Let's just look at those quickly. Paul illustrates this final point, this this idea of hope and our longing for redeemed bodies. He illustrates it in this way. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He says we were saved in hope. Hope was the companion of our conversion. Went right along with it. We were those poor, helpless children, lonely in an orphanage in a foreign country, no one attending to us. And we were saved. We were adopted. We were given hope. Yet, haven't seen it fully yet. So we wait in hope for an inheritance that will end our frustrations. We've heard the the cry, you've been adopted. And we rejoice, yet we long to go home with our mom and our dad, when formerly we had no father and no mother. We long for it in hope. We long, we Christians long for an inheritance that will end all of our frustrations. So now we can have a hope that crushes all our suffering. Paul gives a a kind of silly illustration. No no one hopes and longs for something that's right in front of him. You know, a child might ask for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks for a toy. And then they get it, and it loses its luster very quickly, and then it's tossed aside and is sold in a yard sale. So that's not hope. that's, That's a very shallow thing. Once it's there, uh, not that special. That's not the kind of hope that we have. We have a hope and a certain inheritance, a guaranteed inheritance. If it were right in front of us, why would we hope for it? Yet we do, and here's how we do it. Verse 25, we wait with patience. Or some translations say perseverance or expectancy, even endurance. And so here's, here's where we see the whole passage wrapped up. Paul said in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And in verse 25, we wait for that glory with patience. That's the means by which we hope, is with patient trusting in our kind and heavenly Father. Therefore, we have a hope that crushes all our suffering. To conclude this morning, we we began by talking about the misunderstanding that people have about heaven, such that there's no real reason to hope in it. But the passage here today helps us as believers to hope. A, A wonderful book to read on heaven is very aptly titled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Highly recommend that book. 
Listen to how he summarizes heaven. And this is where we'll end our message today. He says, have you ever been on a trip that became miserable, where everybody got sick or everything went wrong? What did you want more than anything? To go home. In your imagination, you could feel your comfy bed, taste a home-cooked meal, and picture the company of family and friends laughing together in front of the fire, telling stories about what went wrong on your trip. Home is also about comfort. It's a place where we can put on jeans and a sweatshirt and throw ourselves on the couch to relax. It's a place we want to be. As much as I've enjoyed traveling to many different countries, I always love to come home. The craving for home is sweet and deep. Home is our reference point where we always come back to. And here's the key. This is where we'll finish. Knowing we can come home is what keeps us going. And that's what heaven should do for us. It should keep us going because it's our eternal home, the welcome refuge that awaits and calls our name. Let's pray together. In this moment, let's just think on what the Spirit would have us to take away from the Word today. And so, our God and our Father, we thank you that you've adopted us. If we're in Christ, we have a hope that crushes our suffering because we have the first fruits of the Spirit and we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. May we truly long for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.